Please turn to Galatians chapter 3. And the passage we're going to be reading ties in baptism with the Abrahamic covenant, as does a number of other uh, scriptures. In fact, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. And if you would turn over to Genesis chapter 17, we'll look at the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 17 and verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully bring it. We ask that we might worship you, that your covenant is an everlasting covenant, that is a covenant to many generations, not only that you would be a God to us, but to our children after us. And we bless you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before we uh, baptize Natalie Collin this morning, I want to ground what we are doing in the Scriptures because it is the Scripture alone which must govern our baptism. I had a friend when I was in my early 20s who was trying to convince me of infant baptism back at that time, and he would from time to time appeal to church history. And he would say, now, Phil, there's never been a time in church history up until the time of the Reformation when this was not the universal practice, uh, all the way back to the first century. And I told him, well, you know, that's the traditions of men. I want to see it in the Scripture. And he said, yeah, but it's almost up to the time of the apostles. And, uh, for example, he would uh, quote um, uh, Irenaeus, who was uh, born before the time of the Apostle John and was a disciple um, of Polycarp, who John the Apostle himself discipled. And he'd quote him as speaking of the apostolic practice of baptizing, quote, infants and little ones and children and youths and older persons. 
And I told him, yeah, but they're not infallible. In fact, Irenaeus holds to some things I know you disagree with, so that doesn't prove anything to me. Uh, You've got to look in the Scripture. And he had one quote going to within 20 years of the Apostle John's death. He pointed out that the first church controversy to ever arise on the subject of of baptism was in 253 A.D. And the raging controversy at that time was, on which day do we baptize infants? Is it on the eighth day or could it be earlier or later if we do it on a Sunday? That was the raging controversy that they had. And I told them, I don't care. If you can't show me from the apostles' mouths that we're supposed to be doing this, it does not interest me. And that began an interesting debate that lasted over a year. I was a tough nut to... Uh, crack uh, back in those days. If I didn't see it in the Bible, I was not going to believe it. I didn't care how persuasive history was. And I think that is a godly attitude. Now, I'm beginning with that because I honor and respect my Baptist brothers and my relatives because they are trying to be biblical. That is what they are trying to do. And even though I'm going to be disagreeing with them this morning, I want you to honor and respect our Baptist brothers and sisters in the Lord. Their attitude is the Scripture alone. And that's our attitude as well, both the Baptists and the Presbyterians, the Bible alone. Now, I'm not going to give you all of the Scriptures that relate to this fantastic subject, and for me, it's a very precious subject. But if you're interested, we do have a couple of books on the back table that you can pick up. Uh, One is on the whole issue of sprinkling or pouring uh, by Ben Lacey Rose. Uh, The other one is by me, Seven Biblical Principles that Call for uh, Infant Baptism. You can find that Uh, on the back table, and you can also download those for free off of our Biblical Blueprints website. Now, before we look at infant baptism, I want to first of all address the issue of mode, because this was controversial to me as well. I think I was convinced of this a lot more quickly than I was of infant baptism, but first of all, let me tell a story on us Presbyterians, and we deserve it, but uh, this story came from uh, a conference in Scotland. There was a group of pastors who was taking a walk in between some of the lectures. They had a little break. They didn't notice a sign that said that the bridge was dangerous. And so they wandered onto the dilapidated bridge that was spanning a river on the conference grounds. And immediately a security guard comes running out of his little hut. They had little huts there on the side and, uh, you know, told them, you can't go on the bridge there. One of the ministers thinking that He was just supposing they didn't have a conference pass, said, it's okay, we're Presbyterians from the conference. And the security guard says, I'm no caring about that, but if you did not get off the bridge, you'll all be Baptists. (laughs) (laughs) My imitation of Scottish is pathetic, but um, (laughs) I thought I would start with an explanation of why we don't dunk, um, why we don't uh, baptize by immersion, either adults or infants. Every adult that I have baptized, with the exception of one, who I just couldn't talk out of it, and so for his conscience sake, I immersed this person, Uh, but every other adult uh, I have baptized by uh, pouring. Now, we do accept all three modes of of baptism, immersion, pouring, sprinkling. I was immersed myself when I was a teenager, but we believe pouring or sprinkling best symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I have many scriptures that, to my satisfaction anyway, uh, I think demonstrate that this is the only way that they baptized in the Old and in the New Testaments. 
and you can see whether I make my case. I'm not going to go through all of them, but let me give you a quick survey, first of all, of what mode that God used in baptism. And if you want to follow along, uh, we're going to start in Acts, Acts 1 and verse 5. Okay, Acts 1, verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, you can look at this Scripture, you can look at other Scriptures in the Gospels related to John's baptism, and you will see that his baptism was symbolizing, pointing to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was anticipating, it was uh, pointing to that. Now, next, look at verse 8 where this baptism of the Spirit is once again talked about. It says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has, notice these words, come upon you. The movement is with the Spirit acting upon us, not us acting. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, John had earlier prophesied that There was going to be this baptism of the Spirit, but he said there's also going to be a baptism with fire. And take a look at chapter 2 and verse 3, and you will see the baptism of fire there. It says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. I want you to notice first that the movement is with the fire coming down upon them, and secondly, that the fire rested upon their head. They were not immersed in the fire, Uh, uh, the the fire was resting on their heads. So no immersion, no envelopment of fire, and yet it is the baptism of fire. Now take a look at Acts 2 and verse 17. It says here, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. This is quoting from Joel chapter 2. And I want you to notice that the mode is pouring. The movement is with the Spirit coming down upon us, not us moving down into the water. Now, we're going to be seeing in a moment, this is a very significant uh, issue of what it symbolizes. But uh, for right now, what I want to do is say, this is not just Joel chapter 2. There were numerous prophecies of the baptism of the Spirit of Pentecost in the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament passages use the language of either pouring or sprinkling. Let me just give you a quick survey. Isaiah 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. There is the water baptism. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. There is the Spirit baptism. So the water that is poured symbolizes the Spirit that is poured out upon the people. So that passage indicates both water and spirit are going to be poured out on the new covenant community. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27 speaks of sprinkling clean water on the New Testament community and that symbolizes the giving of the spirit it says. Three chapters later Ezekiel says, I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel says the Lord God. Zechariah 12 verse 10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So always in the Old Testament, and this book gives a number of other scriptures, it is pouring or sprinkling when it's anticipating either New Testament baptism or New Testament baptism in the spirit. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 2 
And let's continue on. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Take a look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. It says here, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the words. And then if you look down at uh, verse 47, based on that fact, it says Peter answered, can anyone forbid water? And literally the Greek is, can anyone hold back water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, the word hold back water indicates the movement is with the water just as the movement is with the Spirit. It's coming upon them. Now, take a look at Acts 11, verse 15. <clears throat> it says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's enough. But that would not have been any surprise for the Jews because the Jews were used to these kinds of baptisms. If there was two, three, just a few people, they would pour water on their heads. If there was a large crowd they had to baptize, they would stick branches in the water and they would swing it over the people and sprinkle the people with that. So that was the way that they baptized. And there were many baptisms in the Old Testament. One was when priests came to office at the age of 30, uh, they were baptized with sprinkling. Uh, even the way the word is used in non-baptism circles, I mean, baptism contexts, it uses the same concept. For example, the Greek translation of Daniel speaks of Nebuchadnezzar being baptized with the dew of heaven. That's in Daniel 4, verse 25. Daniel 5, verse 21. So that's not immersion. That's the movement of the water coming upon him. There's a large four-volume set by James Dale. It's about this fat that goes through every reference to bapto and baptizo in secular Greek, biblical Greek, and in religious Greek. And he shows there is not a single example of the usage of this word where it means immersion. It means something quite different. And uh, I think it's an exhausting study, as well as exhaustive, uh, very, very boring. But if you want to read it for further, uh, you can go ahead and borrow it from my, uh, my library. But uh, anyway, let me give you one more. I'm not interested in the secular usage. I'm interested in how the Bible uses this term. Mark 7, verses 1 through 8, speaks of the Jews of that day baptizing their couches and their other furniture every single day before they would sit on that couch. They would ritually purify it. Edersheim tells us how they did it with sprinkling. But if you were to say that baptism was by immersion, you've got this picture of the sofa being immersed in the water every day and, you know, being, okay, have a seat, guys. Uh, that's not the way that they did it. Edersheim explains how they baptized. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 10 through 23, speaks of various baptisms. Now, the New King James translates it as various washings. But you look it up in the Greek, it's, it's baptism, baptismoi, various baptisms, and then lists out those Old Testament baptisms as the sprinkling of this, the sprinkling of that, the sprinkling of the other thing. Sometimes it's sprinkling with water, sometimes it's sprinkling with blood. You're not being immersed in the blood, and yet all of those things, those sprinklings, are called baptisms. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the other scriptures that my friend 
uh, gave me when he was up in Canada, but I do want to relate how I struggled with this doctrine. And I came up with a number of objections. And one of the objections that I came up with first is that the Ethiopian eunuch was clearly immersed, so clearly immersed, in my view anyway, And my friend asked me, okay, why don't you read the passage to me and show me where in the text that it says that he was immersed. So I confidently read Acts 8, verse 38, which says, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, etc., and I said, see, the eunuch went down into the water and he came back up out of the water and that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his identity with that death, burial, and resurrection. Now, he asked me this, well, were both of them baptized? And I said, no, only the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. And then I saw my mistake because the text says that they both went down into the water and it was only after they had both gone down into the water, that he began to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch. And so if that referred to the baptism, then they were both baptized. And uh, so my objection was, okay, uh, so I can see your technical point there, but why would they even need to be standing in the water if they weren't going to be immersed? It's obvious he needed a lot of water. Otherwise, he could have just taken a canteen, poured that over his head. There is no way you're going to convince me that this is not an immersion. Well, he explained uh, that in Old Testament Jewish law, the way in which baptisms had to be performed uh, uh, mandated that there be clean water, running water. There's a number of different rules that would go on that. And interestingly, there is a Christian document. In fact, it's the first Christian document that we have. It's called the Didache. Uh, It was used by the church all the way through the centuries. The Didache was written before Jerusalem fell, before 70 A.D., and in there it gives exactly the same rules that the Jews gave for baptism. It says, if you have this kind of water, use it. If you don't, use this. If you don't have that kind of water, use this. And then it goes on to say, but you baptize by sprinkling. That's right down in the time of the apostles. That's the uh, Didache. But anyway, in any river or pond or lake you would have to wade out about a foot deep, two feet deep, some places up to your knees before you would be able to get uh, clean enough water to be ritually pure so you're not dumping mud on the person's head when you're uh, baptizing him. And then he pointed out, now if you look at some of the different paintings and the frescoes from the first two centuries, you will see that people are standing in the water and they're having water poured over their heads. Well, I, I had a hard time buying into that. I said, okay, well, that's still traditions of men and the word baptizo means immerse. And I I had a hard time with that. So he said, okay, just forget about that. Look at it this way. It is clear from verse 36 that the eunuch got his idea of of being baptized as a Gentile from the passage he was reading from in Isaiah. Quite clear that he got it from Isaiah. So let's look up the section that he was reading from and see if you can find any immersion in that passage. So we looked it up and studied through that, read through the whole pericope, a long section. And to my astonishment, I found, yes, it did talk about Messiah saving Gentiles. It talked about Messiah saving even Gentile eunuchs. No wonder he was excited. Wow, it's talking about me. But it went on to say this. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. 
so shall he sprinkle many Gentiles. Isaiah 52, verse 15. That's the only reference to water in the whole section. So shall he sprinkle many Gentiles. Uh, so he had been reading from Isaiah that the Messiah was going to be sprinkling Gentiles and he says, well, what hinders me from being baptized? I fit all of the uh, conditions of Isaiah. The Messiah's come. I'm a believer. I'm a Gentile. I'm a eunuch. The passage is talking about we. What hinders me from being baptized? And so that was the context. Well, uh, he, I could see he had a point on that one, but I still wasn't convinced. So I said, well, what about John the Baptist? Weren't all of his baptisms by immersion? And he said, no, none of them were by immersion. Well, I thought this was pretty stupid. Uh, it's clear to me that they had to be by immersion. And so I told him, I, turn with me to John 3:23. I said, look here. It says, now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. I said, why would they need much water, you know, if it's not an immersion? I mean, this fits my paradigm. I don't see how in the world it could fit your paradigm of pouring. Well, he responded by pointing out six things. He said, first of all, uh, the Jews would not accept anything that was not grounded in the Old Testament. And you can look in vain at the various authorized baptisms of the Old Testament and you will not find immersion in the law of Moses in terms of how baptism was done. Secondly, this was clearly Jewish proselyte baptism. That's why the, the uh, Pharisees were so offended. We don't need to be baptized. We're sons of Abraham. He says, I can raise, God can raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. He's saying, you've got to be converted. You are excommunicated. You're outside the community. You've got to be converted, get baptized, come back into the Israel of God is basically what John the Baptist was saying. Now, if this is indeed Jewish proselyte baptism which I discovered later, the Baptists vigorously deny. They say it's a brand new thing that was never anticipated before. But if it is proselyte Jewish baptism, we know from all of the literature on that subject that they baptized the infants along with the believing parents. Third, he pointed out that tens of thousands of Jews were in the wilderness all day long, hearing him preaching and teaching, having their families with them. There had to be a place that was conducive to that, that would bring drinking water and would also have the uh, right kind of water for the purification purposes of the Jews, even if it was by sprinkling. Fourth, he pointed out that the inspired text clearly tells us where this baptism was taking place. He says it took place in Anon near Salem. Now, he says, look it up in any geography book. Look it up. What is at uh, Anon near Salem? You will not find anything there that you could dunk a person into. Now, there is water. There are little springs that are bubbling up everywhere. Uh, but there's not enough collected water to even be able to immerse a midget. And um, so he said, you simply cannot get immersions in Anon. Well, I had not heard that before. So I said, okay, I'll study that out and I'll get back to you. Looked up all my Baptist books and couldn't find any help. Went to the Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary. They had a pile of Baptist books. Looked through those. And I was surprised to find over and over again, they said, well, we don't know where this Anon near Salem is. It must be a different Anon and a different Salem because there is no place there that would be sufficient to immerse people in. Well, sure enough, there is, uh, well, the sixth thing he pointed out was that the literal text is there are, was many waters there, not much water. 
And so there were all of these little springs springing up. And you can go to Anon. You can check it out for yourself. Uh, but we know that there was no way that there could be immersion there. So I was stumped on that one. Of course, I had a bunch of other objections. I knew the Scriptures. And I'm not going to give them all to you. I'm just going to repeat one more. I said, well, Romans 6 clearly shows that water baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only immersion really fits this, uh, this, this context. He says, you know, when you die, you're buried in the ground, and then when you're resurrected, you come back out. And that's what's symbolized by immersion. You go down into the water, and then you come back up out of the water. And he says that is the perfect symbol of that immersion gives of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He says, you know what? That's not the way they buried people in the Bible times. What they did is they took the body, they put it up into a sepulcher cut out of stone, they put it onto a platform so that it wouldn't have any contact with the, uh, with the dirt. And immersion simply does not symbolize what they did with Jesus or any of the other uh, people that they, they buried. They don't bury them like we do here. They said, okay, just forget about that for a moment. Just look in Romans 6 itself, he said. He asked me to show him one single verse in Romans 6 that mentions water or that mentions water symbolizing something. And I said, well, it does say baptizo. You know, it does say they're baptized and that means they're dipped, they're immersed and he says, Phil, you're not allowing the Scriptures to define your terms. You know, I've got uh, books on my shelf. The entire book doesn't reference anything other than Romans 6 and Colossians or a couple of other places, but they don't define it. They define it by saying, well, this person admits that it means immerse, and this person admits that it means immerse. But he says, you've got to look in the Scripture. How does the Scripture use this term? Uh, secondly, he pointed out that there are two baptisms. There is water baptism and there is spirit baptism. And he says what he is talking about here is what spirit baptism actually accomplishes in the life of a believer, not what water baptism symbolizes. And he says if that is not true, you're in real trouble. And he challenged me, do this. He says, um, look up. I mean, just read through the passage and insert the word water in front of every place where baptism occurs. He says, if you do that, you will immediately notice that if this is talking about water baptism, water baptism saves everyone who was baptized. It regenerates everyone who was baptized. It unites you to His death, burial, and resurrection. It um, uh, empowers you to live your Christian life. And he says, that's not what you're trying to teach, Phil. I know you don't believe in baptismal regeneration. In fact, he says, the college you and I are attending right now is taking some courses at Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He says, has some professors... And there's other books, including Beasley Murray's, a big fat one that I was using as ammo against this guy. He says all of these, uh, not all of the Baptists hold to this, but these books uh, recently written have been forced to the conclusion that baptism does indeed save, it does indeed regenerate, and they're forced to that conclusion because it's the only way they can import water immersion into Romans chapter 6. And we say, no, it's talking about spirit baptism and what it accomplishes, not water baptism and what it symbolizes. Anyway, the long and the short of it, and unfortunately this has been the long of it, <laughs> is um, 
that I became convinced that baptism, water baptism symbolizes one thing and one thing only. It symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And how did God baptize in the Holy Spirit? We've already seen. He consistently baptized by pouring or by sprinkling. And uh, it was always done in this way. Now, if God's mode of baptizing, and it's using that word, is by sprinkling or by pouring, we as Presbyterians believe it's safest, it's wisest to imitate the way that God did it. And actually, the evidence is so overwhelming on this, there is one entire Baptist denomination that about 10 years ago converted over, and uh, they don't baptize infants, but they baptize their adults by pouring. They've just been so convinced by the, the testimony of the Scripture. Now, why did God use this mode anyway? Well, I believe it was to symbolize the fact that salvation is 100% of God. With immersion, you're the one who's moving. But with pouring and sprinkling, God is the one who is moving, or the water is the thing that is moving in the case of water baptism. Infant baptism, by the way, symbolizes the same thing. In both cases, we are passive, indicating that it is not by our works that we are saved. It is by God working upon us that we are saved. And so the Scripture indicates that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or as the prophets worded it, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Now, let me back up again and say, I don't think this needs to be a point of controversy. It's only the Baptists that have made it a point of controversy because they won't let, uh, like at Piper's Church, they won't let you be a member if you haven't been immersed. Um, and so we say we accept any of these modes. Immersion, we think pouring is best. I didn't get the best baptism, but hey, we accepted it. They didn't make me get rebaptized, okay? But I wanted you to see that we're not just following tradition. We're following the Scripture when we use the mode of pouring or of sprinkling. Now, it's been about 10 years since I've preached on, on this subject other than giving just these little homilies, but I thought it's about time you guys got a, a, an induction. And what is the, the theology that is behind this? The Scripture does not say we are plunged beneath the blood of Christ, as one hymn says, you look up every single reference in the Bible as we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Okay, enough on that. We'll go on to point number two. Okay. Many people are also puzzled by the fact that Presbyterians and many other denominations baptize the babies of believers. Not the babies of unbelievers, only the babies of believers. And I know when I was growing up, I had a hard time with this. This was the one, even after I saw it, my... my uh, Heart was bothered about this because I was so in, 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 ingrained, indoctrinated that this was a bad thing. In fact, we had all kinds of Presbyterian jokes. Uh, none of them were funny because, uh, you know, Presbyterian has five syllables and it's way too long to sustain humor. A little too subtle. That was one of the jokes, but <laughs> in past meditations, we've looked at the household baptisms of Cornelius. Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, Gaius, Stephanus. We've looked at passages like 1 Corinthians 7:14, which says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy, which basically means otherwise your children would be unbaptized, but now they've been set apart. And uh, we've looked at several other New Testament passages, but what I want to do right now, I want to go back to the roots 
of this doctrine in Genesis chapter 17. And if you would turn back there with me. Now, we already read verses 9 through 14, so I won't read that again. And at the time I was reading that, you probably wondered, what in the world does a passage on circumcision have to do with baptism? This is kind of a strange passage to read. But let me give you five reasons why this is very, very relevant. First, Genesis 17 is relevant because the New Testament says that New Testament believers are in the Abrahamic covenant and it repeats that fact over 50 times. This is a very significant doctrine. Over 50 times. In fact, uh, just as a side note, just the discussions of baptism. Every time baptism is discussed, it ties it in with the Abrahamic covenant. So it must be relevant in some way, and we'll get to that in a bit. But first of all, I just want to point out, we are in the Abrahamic covenant, and if believers are in the Abrahamic covenant, then it makes sense why children would be included in the covenant as well, because that's an essential feature of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 10, Genesis 17, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He says this is at the very heart of the covenant. The covenant must be applied to the children. He's saying that's what must happen. Now, if the Abrahamic covenant in its essence includes children, the question is, how can we exclude children today? I want you to keep your finger in Genesis 17 here, and let's turn back to the passage we read earlier from Galatians chapter 3. Now, the book of Galatians, just like the book of Colossians, is telling people you may not get circumcised anymore because baptism has definitively done away with circumcision. And uh, maybe we'll mention that in a, in a bit. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul even calls baptism Christian circumcision. But here in Galatians, he points out simply that faith and baptism is all you need to be in the Abrahamic covenant. That's all you need, faith and baptism. Okay, let's um, read Galatians 3, beginning at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, we'll talk more about this passage in a bit, but I want you to notice here, when we put our faith in Christ, get baptized into the church, at that moment, we become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, on this, Baptists and Presbyterians are agreed. Okay? Faith is what brings the adult uh, into the covenant of Abraham. It at least makes the adult an heir of those promises. I'm not going to take the time to do it because we're going to do it in just a little bit, but you look up every, every promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis, you will find it was a promise made to Abraham and to his children. And that's why it is so sad that there was a chapter break here. Now, chapter breaks are not inspired. They were added in 1228 A.D., you know, less than a thousand years ago. And so what I would say is we must not stop reading at verse 29. That's not where the paragraph ends. Let's continue reading 
and show that it's not just believers who are heirs of the covenant, but the children of believers are heirs of the covenant just like they were in the time of Abraham. Okay, beginning at verse, uh, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child... Now let's stop reading right there for a moment. My dictionary defines <clears throat> this uh, word for child, which is napion, as a very young child, an infant, or a child. So a child continues to be in the Abrahamic covenant because children are at the very heart of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it does not mean that children are saved. In fact, one of our responsibilities as parents is to nurture them and move them to faith, and we'll be seeing that in a bit. But it does say he is an heir. Continuing on, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. In other words, he has no more choice about whether he's going to be in the covenant than he had in the time of Abraham. No different than a slave. No choice whatsoever. He is just included based on God's choice. Continuing to read, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. And so he's saying the parents don't own these children. You know, the Romans thought they owned them. The Greeks thought they owned them. In fact, they had, they could, parents could execute death upon them. And he said, no, these are owned by God. You are simply stewards and guardians of these children. And he's already said in chapter 3, verse 24, what tutors, guardians, and stewards are supposed to do. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We parents have exactly the same role that the law did. What was the law's role? It was to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the role of a parent. Okay, the law doesn't save. Parents don't save. Circumcision doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. Why did God include children in the covenant? It's not because He says... They already are saved or that this will save them. I think ordinarily God has already made them saved like John the Baptist. He was regenerate in his mother's womb. Sometimes he regenerates them later, but that's not the purpose. He says we're supposed to include them in the covenant because we as guardians and stewards are declaring, yes, Lord, you own my child and I want to lead my child to faith in Christ. I am a steward. I want to do what the law does. I want it to bring my child to faith. And so the bottom line that needs to be seen is that Galatians says we're in the Abrahamic covenant and he does so in, in the context of discussing baptism and it indicates that children continue to be heirs of that covenant. That's why Peter's sermon on the Abrahamic covenant in Acts chapter 2 ends with a call to repentance to the people that he was speaking to and a command that they all be baptized. There's a difference there between the baptism and the repentance. A call to those who could hear that they repent and that they all be baptized. And he goes on to say, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. He's referring to the Abrahamic promise, which is still to the children. So you see the message in the Old Testament is exactly the same as the message in the New Testament. The command in the Old Testament was repent and get circumcised. It was a little tougher in the Old Testament, but repent and get circumcised. Did you realize this is why Moses would not let the wilderness generation circumcise their children? Because they were not believers. It's only the children of believers who have the right to the sign of the covenant. And so all of these children who grew up 
uh, during the wilderness, they got circumcised at Gilgal after they made profession of faith. But as soon as they made profession of faith, they and their whole household uh, was circumcised right along with them. It's the same way as it is in the New Testament. And so in Acts chapter 3, it says that in Christ, and he's quoting from Abraham here, in Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's according to the promise to Abraham. He's saying there is still a family covenant in the New Testament. So that's why the Collins are bringing their child uh, this morning. The first reason Genesis 17 is relevant on this occasion is the New Testament says we're in the Abrahamic covenant and essential to that covenant is that children are welcomed. This is the longest point in case you're looking at your watches here. A second reason why this passage is relevant is that Colossians 2, 11 and 12, among other passages, says that baptism corresponds to circumcision and replaces circumcision. In fact, uh, several translations, which I've noted in your, <coughs> in your uh, outlines, translate this as Christian circumcision. Now, the literal rendering is the circumcision of Christ or the circumcision pertaining to Christ. It all means the same thing. What is the circumcision, you know, that's Christian, that relates to Christ, that pertains to Christ? Jews would have had absolutely no problem in following this logic here because they were used to uh, referring to baptism as circumcision for 1,500 years. They had been doing this with regard to women. They had done this with regard to Jews who had apostatized and later came back into the church. And let me explain that uh, to you for a moment. From the time of Moses on, males were circumcised and baptized on the eighth day Females were baptized on the 16th day and their baptism was treated as if it was a circumcision. The as if language, praise God, you know, that they didn't have female circumcision like many countries did, but the as if language is used of us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 26, it says, Gentiles who come into the church are, quote, counted as if circumcised. And then the next verse, it says, excommunicated Jews are counted as if they are not circumcised. In other words, they're excommunicated. They're not part of Israel. They are, they're, they're considered to be Gentiles uh, outside of the covenant. So here's the question. What do you do with a Jew who's been excommunicated? He's outside of Israel and he's had some time to meditate upon that. And he's weeping in repentance and he says, please, I repent, will you... Uh, accept and forgive me and bring me back into the church, what do they do with a person who has repented and has come back into the covenant? They couldn't recircumcise him. That would be pretty difficult, if not impossible. What they did instead is they baptized him with what the Old Testament speaks of as the baptism of Nida, is the Hebrew word, or what some people call uh, the baptism from the dead. Why? Because they're spiritually dead outside the covenant, right? So they're baptized from the dead into the covenant or sometimes it's referred to as proselyte baptism. Now, I was fascinated when I was younger and wasn't quite sure of all the dynamics of this debate why it was that some of the Baptists were so insistent that John's baptism was never authorized by the Old Testament. It was something brand new, something that people would never have known about, and why it certainly was not proselyte baptism that the Old Testament uh, anticipated and brought, uh, uh, brought to bear. Well, I came to discover why. Jewish proselyte baptism 
baptized the whole household, including the infants, upon the profession of the faith of the Father. That's the way they did it. All of the males were circumcised. All the males and females were baptized when they came in. So all of that flowed from the Abrahamic covenant and became more explicit under the time of Moses. So it should be no surprise to us that John the Baptist ties his baptism in with the Abrahamic covenant. (coughs) It should be no surprise to us that Acts 2, when it's discussing repentance and baptism, it ties it in with the Abrahamic covenant. The New Testament discussion of whether Gentiles could come into the church is based on, guess again, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, And he quotes actually Genesis 12, verse 3, Genesis 28, verse 14, that says, "...in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." It's not just the Jews who have a family covenant. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. (coughs) The discussion in Galatians 3 through 4 is based on the Abrahamic covenant. And so the second reason this passage is relevant is that baptism replaces circumcision... And just as circumcision applied to infants and households, baptism must as well. Um, in fact, as I've already mentioned, Colossians 2, 11 and 12 calls baptism, at least in some translations, Christian circumcision. Early church fathers did refer to it as the great circumcision, baptism. Now, a third reason why this passage is relevant is because the New Testament keeps appealing to the promise made to Abraham applying to us and to our children. I'm not repeating myself here. Let me go through those points again. First of all, it's relevant because we're in the Abrahamic covenant. We are subject to its expectations. We have to follow the the, the requirements of it. Secondly, baptism corresponds to circumcision, replaces circumcision. And thirdly, we still have Abraham's promises. Now, if you examine every promise, which we won't take the time to do this morning, but you examine every promise given in Genesis 12 through 25 to Abraham, every single one of those promises was to Abraham and to his descendants. For example, look at Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So God promises not only to be a God to Abraham, but to be a God to Abraham's descendants. And he makes that promise something that can never be superseded by later revelation or by later covenants. In fact, Paul makes a big point of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18 when he says that the covenant with Moses that came 430 years later cannot annul the promise given to Abraham so as to make it of no effect. No later covenant can annul the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because it was said to be eternal. Genesis 17 continues to apply. So, we find in Acts chapter 2, when Peter applies the promise of Abraham to New Testament children, he says, for... The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. That's the language of Genesis 17. Children were clearly included in that call to baptism in the previous verse. Why? Because it's an Abrahamic context that he's talking about here. When an adult believed, he had to apply the covenant to his children. Why does Galatians 4.1 include children as heirs? In, in Baptist literature, it was only the believers who were heirs. But why does it include children as heirs? Well, because the verse before that says that believers are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The whole passage is discussing baptism from the perspective of the Abrahamic promise 
And so it's no wonder, he says, yeah, children are heirs. In Acts 17, Paul does the same with the Philippian jailer when he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, how does he express faith that he's going to, uh, this is going to happen, that he really believes the Abrahamic covenant? He not only gets baptized himself upon his profession of faith, but his entire household is baptized as well. And that Abrahamic pattern you can see with five other households. In fact, you can check this out in the, in the book here. The only times that there are any baptisms in the New Testament where we know there were no children involved is because there were no children involved. Baptism of Christ, he didn't have any children. Paul didn't have any children. Ethiopian eunuch couldn't have any children. Uh, you won't find any baptisms uh, where we know children were not involved uh, except for, you know, we're ju they're just not mentioned. New Testament applies the promise to Abraham and his children to believers and their children today. So there, we've seen three reasons. First, we're under the Abrahamic covenant and its requirements. And this is where it's spelled out. Second, baptism replaces circumcision. Third, the promise to Abraham applies today. It's an everlasting promise that can never be annulled, a promise to believers and their children. The fourth reason why Genesis 17 is so relevant, and we're just about tying up here, is that when you go back to the foundations of a doctrine, many times you can correct errors and abuses of the doctrine. That is definitely the case with this, but you can see it with other doctrines as well. One of the errors and abuses of the doctrine of infant baptism is there are people like in the Roman Catholic tradition and the Lutheran tradition who say that baptism saves, that it regenerates you. And so we go back to this. If there's a correspondence between circumcision and baptism, we realize that is absolutely not true. We Presbyterians vigorously disagree. And I don't think you could find a better example than Ishmael to show circumcision didn't regenerate anyone. Why do we know that? Well, he says that Ishmael had to be circumcised, and yet in verses 18 through 21, he makes it equally clear Ishmael was not saved either before or after the circumcision. Okay? That was Paul's point in Romans 3. The Jews said, hey, we're okay. We don't need to believe the gospel. We're circumcised. We have God's favor upon us. And he lambasts them. He says, no way. There are many benefits to circumcision in the Old Testament. He says, much in every way, but regeneration was not one of those benefits. Now, uh, there are many Lutherans who insist that 1 Corinthians 7.14 teaches that when a child is outwardly cleansed with water, he becomes inwardly holy with regeneration. But actually, when you read the passage, you see it's actually the reverse order of what they are talking about there. Uh, what this passage does is it says that because the believing spouse sanctifies the entire household, including the unbelieving spouse, sets them apart. This is the outward holiness. Because of that, the child can also be outwardly cleansed. He, he, and he goes on to say, without the outward holiness, he says, otherwise your children would be unclean. That, that's the same word, by the way, it's used of... Christ's baptism, the baptism of the apostles, baptism in Ephesians, and the baptism talked about in, 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 in Hebrews. He, it, it could almost be like a cinema. Otherwise, your children would be unbaptized, but now uh, they are holy. So the context indicates it's both, both the holiness and the cleansing are outward. 
They're not inward. Otherwise, we'd have to say every child in Corinth was regenerated. Instead, what Paul says about the sanctified spouse, the spouse is not cleansed, only the baby is. But about the, un, un, uh, the sanctified spouse, how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 1 Corinthians 7.16. Well, we can say the same thing about our children. Baptism doesn't save, but it shows that they have been set apart. Fifth, this passage shows the seriousness of excluding our children from baptism. Verse 14 of Genesis 17 says, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. Without circumcision, the children are cut off from the church. They're outside the community. This is why Moses was rebuked by God when he did not circumcise his son Gershon. I don't know if you remember that story. The angel of the Lord came to meet him with a sword drawn in his hand and was about to kill Moses, it says, because he's a leader. He ought to know better, and leaders are held to a higher standard. He's about to kill Moses, and Moses' wife quickly circumcised Gershom, and the Lord leaves him alone. That's how serious the Lord takes it. He was not. God included him in the covenant. Moses was not. In Ezekiel... When God speaks of children uh, that were born uh, in Israel, He calls them children whom you bore to Me, Ezekiel 16.20, and My children, Ezekiel 16.21. God claimed them in His covenant. They were excluding them from God's covenant. And He said, you can't do that. And in the same way, when His disciples came to exclude children, and in Luke, the parallel passage, He says they excluded infants, He rebuked them and He said, Allow the little children to come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. They're at least outwardly in the kingdom, if not really in the kingdom. And I think frequently they really are already in the kingdom, regenerated just like uh, John the Baptist was. In the New Testament, if the New Testament had not replaced circumcision with baptism and had not called baptism circumcision, what I would say is we would have to continue to circumcise all male children and baptize all the males and the females. Why? Because we're in the Abrahamic covenant. We have to follow its requirements. But all bloody rites passed away with Jesus, and just as the Passover, which is an eternal sign, had to give way to a non-bloody form in the Lord's table, circumcision, which is a bloody sign, had to give way, and just the baptism portion of it remained in the New Testament. Now, there are many objections people sometimes bring as to the wisdom. They say, okay, I can see it's biblical, but it's not really wise because people might trust in it. But as John Calvin pointed out many years ago, every objection that you can bring against the wisdom of infant baptism can be equally well brought against the wisdom of infant circumcision. And so it's really a questioning of God's wisdom. And so as the Collins uh, come forward at this time, I want you parents, all of you parents, uh, to lay claim to the promises of Abraham that he will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. It's a great, great promise. Resolve to be tutors who lead your children to Christ.